Dr. Stu's podcast with me and Bella, the barking dog, and my my <laughs> my cohort, Bliss Young. Hello. Uh, thanks, Bliss, for being here. We're yeah. back for podcast number 135. And you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstuespodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can like us, give us five stars. You can email me at askdrstu. That's askdrstu, S-T-U, at gmail.com. You can find Bliss at bliss at birthingbliss.com. Yep. And I'm also on Instagram, and so are you, at yes. what? Birthing Bliss Midwifery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of us, those of you who are regular listeners, you know that often we record two podcasts in a row. So sort of, I'm still like uh, reeling a little bit from recording the podcast number 134. Um, with Carla Lang. With Carla Lang, and mm-hmm. that's still uh, sitting heavily on our mind. We had some interesting conversation <laughs> afterwards, which we might bring Carla back on again once we uh, this thing plays itself out a little bit further. Um, I did do some, we did a little research after that we got off the podcast last time and found out that the, um, uh, there are 244 hospitals listed in California on their C-section rate mm-hmm. and Monterey Park Hospital is the sixth worst at 41.6% C-section rate. They had 480 some deliveries and 200 and some cesarean sections. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but this is a, again, I think it's a largely Hispanic population. Yeah. Um, probably a lot of multips, um, so that's an extremely high cesarean section rate. Like yes. I said, it's sixth from the bottom. Uh, also, Carla did some research and found out that they have over 30% episiotomy rate, um, which is extremely high. And I guess in this last case, even though he didn't cut one, he was intending to, I think. Mm-hmm. But then things got out of control or whatever else, and she tore anyway. Which, as those of us who do a lot of these births know, people in the thotomy position do tend to tear more and it's but it's really unusual for a multip if somebody knows what they're doing well it sounds like how intently he invasive. pulled the baby yeah. out it was just invasive i mean everything that she described caused it was we discussed it was either like negligent or malicious or uh what were the other words i used <laughs> <laughs> i think it's interesting. inappropriate or archaic archaic yeah yeah i think it's interesting too that um carla said that the mom said giving birth here in the States is not good. This is horrible, yeah, you know, because she I, had a home birth. And, and we agreed with her. We said, yeah. yeah, it can be. It can be. That's she had a home birth with her, a home birth with her first baby. In Guatemala. In Guatemala. Yeah. And because we, because of the adoption thing, she had to have it uh, in a hospital. And <laughs> we were just saying that in hindsight, she should have just stayed home and had it at home. And what's, what's going to happen? Oops, the baby came so fast. I'm sorry. That's what the nurse said. The baby would just fall out. So... Just if she got up, yeah, you can't get up because the baby will fall out. Ugh, oh, thanks, Carla, for being with us. Sigh, sigh, sigh. Mm-hmm, deep breath. Ones. Ready? Ready? Some deep breath. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay, we're good. So we're uh, today we're gonna today we're gonna mainly focus later on on my uh, uh, paper with Rick Safries on uh, sixty home breach and one hundred nine home cephalic bursts. But before we get to that, we got a few more things left in the mailbox I wanted to get to. Uh, Chris, uh, Kirsten from, let's see, where's Kirsten from? Tennessee. I like ah. Tennessee. Got a lot of listeners in Tennessee. Uh, she asks two questions. Uh, second one was about Rogam. And she says, uh, what are the pros and cons? Are there alternatives? How much research has been done? Uh, pretty much Rogam has been researched extensively. Would you agree? Yes. Okay. Yes. And we don't believe that there's tends to be any negativity to it. And it does serve a purpose. I've had a couple of clients who've refused it, mm-hmm. and neither one of them has been sensitized. Um, the 28-week or both? 
The both. 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 Okay. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly not statistically significant, as I like to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the the current recommendation and one that I can agree with, and I think most midwives agree with, is to uh, for those women who are Rh negative, whose husbands are Rh positive, or who now you can do um, uh, prenatal prenatal genetic screening, and you can actually find out the blood type of the baby. Um, some of the things that offer the NIPT testing also offer that. So if a woman wants to do that ahead of time, if there's any question about whether the baby's blood type might be Rh positive, um, they can do that first, or they can just empirically get a get a thing of Rogam. Is that covered under insurance because of that reason? Because I know a lot of times, it, unless you're over 35 or you have a reason, you know, genetically to get it. Well, it's a separate test from the other one, and I think it would. I suspect it would be covered, but most of these companies, they do have a limit that if it, it's not covered, they charge you $295 mm-hmm. max or something like that. So, okay. uh, yeah, and if you don't really want the Rogam, but you want to maybe have several more kids, it might be reasonable to do it. If it's your last kid, you could see, theoretically decline to get it. Mm-hmm. But if you did get sensitized, then you probably would have difficulty either giving or receiving a transfusion in, uh, or blood donation in the future. That's an interesting point. So too. just something to mm-hmm. think about. The yeah. other question she asks is, perineal tearing in general, what do studies say about how to best prevent tearing? What practices do we endorse? And the best pushing options, exercises, et cetera. So you want, you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I talked about it on a previous podcast, but um, in France recently they did a study because they were having a lot of third and fourth degree tears and they they compared directed pushing to um, allowing the mom to follow her natural instincts. And um, that's what I do in my practice. Sometimes it takes a lot longer for those instincts to come forward based, you know, versus just her being complete, really waiting for her to find that natural rhythm. Um, And I see a lot less tearing and that's what they found as well. So that would be my number one thing. Um, Water is very helpful for that. Um, Warm compresses if she's not in the water to just bring, you know, circulation there in that area. Um, I really believe that um, a lot of what we see in the hospital, Carla kind of referred to it as the horrible stretching. Um, Having our hands inside of a woman's vagina, trying to stretch those tissues, I think actually causes more swelling and damage. So um, the more we can have hands off, except for maybe a little bit of counter pressure, um, encouraging the mom to offer counter pressure to herself, especially up towards the top, the clitoris, if she's feeling like instinctually she wants to put her hand there, encouraging her to do so, I think is really helpful. Um, slowing down that the last little bit of pushing. Um, I was horrible at this. As soon as I felt that ring of fire, I wanted to blast the baby out as quickly as possible. Um, but if you can really get a mom to relax into that and, and remind her why that's happening, that her tissues are stretching and, and the slower we do that part, the better her tissues are going to respond. Um, those would be my my recommendations. How about you? Yeah, no, no, I, I, I don't think I have anything that, uh, to add to that. I think that, um, as you said, the, the, the slow stretching, Mm -hmm. um, Moisture, water, warm compresses. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes maybe pre-labor in the last couple months of pregnancy, maybe uh, using some moisturizer, some vitamin E, mm-hmm. oil on the perineum, some uh, aloe maybe, just some things to uh, 
um, make the skin a little bit more pliable, that Supple. sort of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, there, there are there. You know, we used to believe that perineal massage was something you might do with your husband or your partner. Mm -hmm. um, sort of the that's sort of come out of favor now. I don't think that it's as popular as it was maybe 10, 5, 10 no, years ago. No, it's not. And what I do counsel women on, because they ask about that a lot, is I think the benefit of a perineal massage would be when she starts to feel that burning, like an Indian burn. I don't know if that's a racist comment. I hate to use it. Oh, stop it. <laughs> um, you know, that burning sensation that we talk about, the ring of fire. Yeah. If she can practice relaxing around that sensation... I think that's beneficial. It's that it's that ability to kind of get that muscle memory of when I start to feel that, if I can really relax my bottom, relax and not kind of pull away or, you know, yeah. want that sensation to go away, that can be super helpful. And I know there's good data out there now on breech birth that, that women being on all fours, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about it even in my own paper, so supports this premise, is that you see much less perineal trauma when women are on all fours mm -hmm. than when they're on... Uh, on their back. On the lithotomy position, yeah. Well, again, I think a woman following her natural instincts and what position feels best for her too, like, you know, really honoring that. If she's having a hard time and wants us to, you know, help guide her, then that's different. But as much as we can, encouraging her to follow her rhythms. Um, stools, well, uh, I was birth say, stools. I was going to say the last thing that I would say is what, sometimes it's whatever the practitioner is comfortable with because... I know that some midwives swear by the birth stool, and mm -hmm. my own experience with the birth stool is I've seen some pretty nasty tears with the birth stool. So well, it might be that I'm not skilled enough. I was going to say, I think women tear more on birth stools. Oh, you, oh so you were going to agree with me. <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yes, but I do think for primeps, sometimes it's more... It can be effective, effective for pushing, right? Yeah. So, you know, you kind of have to weigh those two things out, right? Getting the baby deep enough down on the birth stool and then maybe getting off the birth stool for the last, you know, actual delivery, depending on what's happening. Obviously, if you really are needing to get a baby out for some reason, you might, you know, be willing to risk the tear to get the baby out. Um, but I do find that the pressure on the perineum in a birth stool is quite intense. Okay. So, yeah. so Kristen, there you go. <laughs> uh, okay, so today I wanted to talk a little bit because my paper came out probably by the time this one comes out, it'll be about a month ago. Um, by the I know, time this we've been filling up the podcast with other stuff, yeah, so I'm excited That's to okay. talk about it. Um, I, do have to, I do have to make one comment, though, about, about the, the climate that we live in. Of course, everybody listening probably already knows this, but um, I got an email from my partner, Dr. Rothbart, um, congratulating me because my paper showed up on something called Doximity. You mm know, -hmm. I'm not sure what Doximity is. I think it's a a bunch. It's a it's a website that takes articles and and sends them to doctors. That's what I think it does. Mm -hmm. And he was all excited about it. And so I clicked on it and I read. Uh, I went to the comments section, of course, which I always sort of I'm always a little wary, but mm -hmm. I like to read the comments. And the very first comment was actually quite good. It was uh, supportive, but also, you know, it was thoughtful. And these are all written by doctors, the comments, something, something MD from wherever they're from. Not just OBs. And the next five, there were only six comments when I looked at it. And the next five comments were all, what a freaking idiot. You know, what is Doximity doing publishing this sort of trash? That sort of, that, that sort of thing. So this is the battle that we're fighting and probably eventually going to be losing as it so eloquently says in the Heads Up Breach video that Elliot and I screened uh, a couple weeks ago in Santa Barbara 
is that those of us who know how to do breach delivery are dying off. Mm. <laughs> and, Literally? Uh, yeah. Well, when you get attitudes like this, and I, you know, the, the, some of these people, I don't know who they are, these physicians, but some of them had pictures. They looked like they were relatively younger physicians. Mm-hmm. And um, they're basically calling me an idiot, calling Rick and I, uh, you know, or Doximity was bad to publish such an article, that sort of thing. Even though they didn't publish it, they, they just listed it. What do you what do you think about that? How does that make you feel when you read those? Uh, I'm not surprised. It makes me feel sad because mm-hmm. I think that it's so it shows what what uh, that you know what what the internet has done is it's it's emboldened people to say things they wouldn't normally say to anyone's face, right? Um, and sometimes they they let loose with things that are you know. I'm not, and I'm not talking about trolling and that sort of thing. I'm talking about just saying things that are hurtful or that are stupid because there's no, there's no consequence to it. They're not, they're not going to com- get a comment on their comment. You know, I mean, well, they do sometimes if you look at newspaper threads and stuff, but this sort of thing. But to put that out there, just, it just basically shows who, who you're the ignorant one. Right. You're the idiot. Because, you know, you, some of your clients are going to want this. And you're going to lie to them. Right. Not practicing good medicine. Not practicing, infor- you know, uh, ethical medicine. Right. Using coercion and in skewed informed consent to get your clients to do what you want is not good, me- is, not, is not right. Yeah. So when they say it, it, there's enough evidence in the world literature, if they were to read it, and I would bet you that the P- five people with the idiot comment probably didn't even read the paper. You're they, probably They right. would have done what most people I always say do. They would have read the abstract Mm-hmm. And maybe the last paragraph of the conclusions mm-hmm. or the discussion or something, and that's it. And they wouldn't have looked at the paper, and that's all they would have done. I could, I, you know, I, I, I can't know that, but I pretty much people who are going to write that kind of a comment, because if you read the paper, it's very thoughtfully done. Well, of course, it's published. You guys worked on it a really long time, we and did. you're both very intelligent people. So it's not it's it's a well thought out. And paper. we and we tr- we specifically, I mean, we specifically went through it and took out some of the Doctor Stu uh, <laughs> tone, mm-hmm. and we mellowed it out, and we made mm-hmm. it very uh, reasonable. And we actually were critics. You know, we pointed out when the in the limitations and, and strengths and limitations section, we pointed out. We'll get to, let's get to it. Okay, so we get to it a little bit. Sure. What I want to say is, yes. I say I say this often about you, and I feel emboldened uh, with Carla being here as well, um, that it takes a lot of courage to continue to do the kind of work that you're doing and to make the kind of statements that you make that are contrary to the majority of the, the people that are in your field. So I really honor that. And I think the more that we go against the grain, although I think it's super important because obviously statistically we're not doing very well in this country. So someone's got to speak up and stand up against that. Um, But you're going to get, you're going to get kind of beaten down. That's just part of, I always think of there was this um, movie. It was a baseball movie. Can't remember which one, but he talked about like the first person that goes through the wall ends up being the one that's most beaten up. And I always think about that as leaders in in something. Oh, I, yeah, thank you. I think that that's true for just yeah. about any, any topic. Yeah, so. so I love you. I'm not the first person to go through the wall, <laughs> but I'm... I'm. This wall you're going through yeah, right now, currently. Yeah, this one. Yeah. Yeah, maybe this wall. Yeah. So yes, get to it. Are you going to read us the abstract? Yeah, well, I was going to say something, and now I've totally... You, you know, I got all emotional, and now I've totally <laughs> forgotten what I was going to say. But it'll come back to me. Um Anyway, so the paper came out in uh, B 
BMC Pregnancy and Childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a journal that people can find, and you can find it at the top banner. Easiest way to find it is go to birthinginstincts.com, and at the very top of the homepage, there's a banner, and just click on the banner, and it'll take you right to the paper. And what we did is, um, uh, the abstract says this, research on outcomes of out-of-hospital breech birth is scarce. This study evaluates the outcomes of singleton-term breach and cephalic births in a home or birth center setting. And when you type up, when you write a paper, there are strict rules about how many words you can use for your abstract, how many words you can use for the paper, mm-hmm. you know, how the references have to be listed and stuff like that. So it, there's a lot that goes into this sort of thing. So a lot of things are shorter than I would like them to be. But um, the important thing about this to me is that there are so many recommendations out there from the, from American College of OBGYN and other things that say, you know, that breech birth is something that in skilled hands should be offered to women and stuff like that, but that breech birth at home is absolutely contraindicated. Mm-hmm. And they're basically basing, they're basically basing, I hate using the word basically. I use it all the time and I hate that word. <laughs> they're basing their opinion on some stats from the MANA, sta- from, from the MANA statistics, mm-hmm. which, which don't com- have any uh, control over planned or unplanned, skill of the practitioner, selection criteria, preemie or non-preemie. And so the outcomes in breech births in the manistats were worse than head down births. And so basically from that, I said it again, they, I said basically again. I heard you. Okay. I was, I was letting, <laughs> you, didn't even, I was, you didn't even acknowledge me. I was moving on. <laughs> um, they, um, they, they use those statistics to come out with their level C recommendation that breech birth at home is, is contraindicated. Mm-hmm. So me being like you know being being me and doing these things anyway because partly because that's how I make a living and partly because I think it's the right thing to do and and you know as I say in the video, um, all things being equal, breech birth should be done in a hospital, mm-hmm. but all things aren't equal right. and they never will be or right. at least not I don't expect them to be in the near future. So there is no data out there. So I wanted to put some data out there, which is why we you know why we struggled really hard to find. Uh, journal and find a reviewer and find people that would look at this and say, yeah, this is not something maybe I would do, but it's something that should be out there. And so we're very happy to get it out there. And so then we, then we, what we did was is a retrospective study where we looked at 60 breach and 109 cephalic planned out of hospital births during a six year period from 2000, uh, I think 10 to 16. And uh, we looked at the outcomes and we measured include the mode of delivery, birth weights, APGAR scores, uh, transports, perineal integrity, uh, and some other morbidity. That's sort of what we summarize in this paper. And the abstract says the results uh, out of the 60 and 109, there were 50 and 102 that went into labor. Um, 10 of the breaches and seven of the head down babies were trans, the care was transferred prior to labor for obstetrical re- for other obstetrical reasons. And those things are all diagnosed. Uh, each separate one is listed in there and discussed as to why these people, things like cholestasis, preterm labor, uh, uh, you know, severe preeclampsia, those sorts of things. When women didn't go into labor, they were, they were excluded from the study, but they were, we still brought in mention. So there were 50 breech babies that went into labor and 102 cephalic babies that went into labor. And these are only singleton births? Right? Only singleton, non-VBAC mm-hmm. um, births okay. in my practice. We had VBAC breaches and VBAC Singletons, too, had down babies, but we wanted to exclude VBAC. We wanted to exclude that as a separate variable because, it, it, you know, there, there's a different dynamic when it comes to VBAC, and we wanted to be as pure and as clean as possible. And of the 50 breaches, um, 40 delivered at home, 
for an 80% success rate. Mm-hmm. Um, eight, 10 were transferred to the hospital. Two of those delivered vaginally in the hospital, but that option is no longer available. That was an option with Dr. Wu when mm-hmm. Dr. Wu was still around. Mm-hmm. So we had an 80% success rate. Of that, 76% of the primips, we had a very skewed uh, number of primips in the breach section. I think 41 of the 50 were, were primips. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's like 80, 82%. Um, whereas only 56% of the head down babies were primips. So you can't compare the groups equally to each other. But uh, of the nine multips, obviously we had a 100% success rate. Mm-hmm. And we had a 76% rate with the primips with home breech birth. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty darn good because that's actually better than a woman with a head down baby walking into most hospitals. Yeah. Certainly Monterey Park Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a chance of delivering Don't vaginally. ever go there. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, anyway, so th- so we had a very high success rate with both. We had of the 102 cephalic babies, we had uh, 92 that delivered at home and 10, were th- and 10 that were transferred. Let's see. No, 90 delivered at home and 12 were transported or 11. No, 11 were transported. 91 delivered at home, mm-hmm. and eight of the ten, uh, 11 transports delivered vaginally. So we had we had 100, uh, 99 out of 102 babies delivered vaginally, which is essentially 97, well, it's 99%, but 97 of the uh, percent, wait, 97% delivered vaginally. Sorry, I'm screwing up my numbers here. I've got a flood of things going through my head with the numbers here. Yeah, well, he's actually not reading any of this. He's just recalling it from his brain, which I'm actually... Quite impressed that yeah, you can so do that. The number is actually 97.1% of the mothers gave birth vaginally, the head down group, mm-hmm. which is pretty darn, pretty darn impressive. Yeah, no, it's great. Right. Yeah. And again, remember, 56% of those were primips. Right. So 100% of the multips, the 100% uh, gave birth of the multips, and you know all the C-sections, the three C-sections were out of the primips. So the C-section rate was about, of the primips was about 6, 6%, but overall it was only 3%. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. I always say 5% is the norm. So um, among the completed out-of-hospital births, the breach, gr- the breach group did have significantly higher rate of one-minute APGAR scores less than seven, mm-hmm. which is traditionally what you find in all, almost all breach papers, but no significant difference in five-minute APGAR scores. That's interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's but that's also typical of other papers with hospital breach births. You know, all the ones out of Europe. The, most of them are out of Europe. Um, rates of vaginal birth for both groups were high, with eighty-four percent of the breach and ninety-seven point one percent of the cephalic mothers giving birth vaginally. The reason it says eighty-four percent because it includes the two people that gave birth at the hospital with Doctor Wu. So I would say I would basically say eighty percent were successful at home. Compared to primips, multips in both groups had less perineal trauma, higher rates of -of out-of-hospital birth, vaginal birth, and spontaneous vaginal birth. Uh, No breech mother or infant required postpartum hospital transport, while one cephalic infant and one cephalic mother required postpartum transport. Of the babies born out of the hospital, there was one short-term and one long-term birth injury among the breech group. That included a fractured humerus and a brachial plexus injury. Mm-hmm. And in the short term, bra- uh, uh, in and in the cephalic group, there was one short term brachial plexus injury. So again, it's hard to reach statistical significance when you're only talking about fifty 
disperse. Mm-hmm. So we our, our numbers, when you calculate them, are not p- powered enough to come out with any conclusions of of some major problems that could occur. But we really we didn't have any major problems. I mean, a brachial plexus injury is nothing to you know nothing to um, uh, right you know to brush off. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word yeah. either. <laughs> well, to blow. I was going to say blow off, but you can't. I mean, it's not something. You, but nonetheless. Uh, you know, we didn't, uh, these, none of these mothers had any complications from cesarean because none of these mothers had cesarean. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, again, we've always talked about it and everything we talk about bliss is that, is that there's, there's nothing that has zero risk. Right. Everything has risk. Right. Okay. That's just so, part of life. So the conclusion we came up with was a home or breach center setting leads to high rates of vaginal birth and good maternal outcomes for both breach and cephalic term singleton presentations. Out of hospital vaginal breach birth under specific protocol guidelines and with a skilled provi- uh, provider, that's Rick's word because you know I don't like that word. Skilled provider? I, no, I, don't, I like the word practitioner. I don't like the word uh, provider. Uh-huh. Maybe a reasonable choice for women wishing to avoid a cesarean section, especially when there is no option of a hospital breach birth. However, this study is underpowered to calculate uncommon adverse neonatal outcomes. I mean, so we're very open and honest about the fact that we don't have enough numbers Right. And, uh, you know, I'm just one guy, so it's hard to, yeah, to get you're numbers. you're doing the best you can. I am doing the best I can. Hey, so other places in the country that don't have um, the law that we have here that midwives can deliver breaches at home, mm-hmm. you know where they are? Have, have we, like, highlighted making sure that, that you no. know, they have good training out there? And... No, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. Should, we should have probably looked that up. Mm-hmm. Um I know there are certain states, and again, uh, there are not there are not a lot of states, but there are certain states where there's no limits on what midwives can do. Right, and I'm sure they learn from other midwives, you know, too. But so. midwives, to me, seem to be only ones with with universal intellectual curiosity regarding breech birth. I don't get a sense that OB residents, certainly not medical students, but OB residents don't have, other than a few exceptions, are 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 not even interested in learning. That's what um, Dr. Wu said. Yeah, he says that very well. Actually, he says that in the uh, in the video too. You've heard him say that. Yeah, and he someone someone who works with him told me that he said that people just weren't interested while he was there. They just weren't. They never came. Yeah, and he. I mean, he was doing like you know one or two breaches a month, pretty Mm -hmm. much toward the end of his career, and no one would ever. He, he, you know, the other doctors were in labor and delivery, waiting on their own clients, and no, they would never come in. Well, I mean, I really think that. It's going to be difficult to find the majority of doctors who are going to be wanting to do something that's more difficult, more skill, and more risk just because of the pressures that are put on them through, you know, their higher ups in the hospital and the insurance companies and their liability insurance and all of that. Um, But as always, I believe that if women continue to advocate for themselves, they're informed and they advocate that this is something that they are demanding that things can shift. I don't necessarily know that it's going to come from the practitioner or the provider. Yeah, I just don't know where people are going to get enough training. Uh, so what's going to have to happen is there's going to have to be breach centers where there's a f- the few people that are there can train enough people to keep those centers going because... I don't think there's enough breach births going to happen in residency programs around the country mm-hmm. where the average physician's going to finish his four years of residency and come out and say, now I feel comfortable doing breach deliveries. Mm-hmm. He might feel comfortable if he's in a center where there's, you know, a team, 
right. ready to assist or ready to help, or there's a, there's a mentor that, that has been doing them for years who can then just talk people through it and walk people through it. Because even though Frank Lewin, who's one of my, one of my mentors in, in Frankfurt, Germany, says that you need to watch tons of videos and you need to work with a simulator, as so many of my midwife followers say, there's, a simulator doesn't have, your heart rate isn't going 140 beats a minute and your blood pressure isn't 160 over 110 when you're delivering a baby with a simulator. Yeah, but I mean, I often equate breech deliveries to, in my mind, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to shoulder dystocia. Because a breech left, you know, the number one thing is to have hands off the breech, right? And to know the signs, just like we do in shoulder dystocia, if a baby is malpositioned and is going to need us to step in and do hand manipulations, exactly the same, Exactly. So we don't have a simulator for shoulder dystocia. It's one of the complications that oftentimes we're really concerned about. And everyone that I've ever heard talk about the first time they did a shoulder dystocia you know, they remembered what they were taught and their hands just did what it needed to do. So I think it's similar. Well, we do have, we do have, we do, they do simulate shoulder dystocias. They can do simulators. Yeah. I mean, what we do in midwifery school is amusing. But again, it's not the same thing as when you have a head that comes out and then turtles and then it sucks back and it's like, whoa, now what? Yeah. Now, now my skills come into play. That's why I was hired, right? I was hired to come in and do these things. Right. And you have to be a shepherd at that point and you have to realize that this baby's life is my responsibility and I, and I can't punt it to anybody else. I can't call for help. I can't do anything else. I got to, I got to get this baby out. Yeah. So if you, you know, in, in the cases where I had uh, a brachial plexus injury or where I had a, the broken humerus was a case where the arms were really malpositioned mm-hmm. and I did my best to get them out. And most of the time when that happens, you, you know, it's just very smooth sailing and you know the maneuvers to do it. But every now and then, you know, something adverse will happen. Yeah, and that's what we learn. We learn that you may have to do those things. <laughs> you yeah, I'll, go in I'll, steps. I'll, I'll never forget the sound of the broken humerus was 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 a horrible sound. I did a delivery with you right after that at the. I, I described it to you at the birth center, and you said under your breath, but I was close enough to hear you. You said, "I hope I don't break this baby's arm." <laughs> you know, I think it's like the we did a breech birth PTSD. I don't remember actually. It yeah, must have been. It must have been. It must yeah, have been. We were doing a lot of breeches then. Yeah, yeah. No, it's pretty funny, and and mm-hmm. so afterwards, you know. Uh, the baby's arm, the circulation looks good, the color looks good. Uh, so I call the pediatrician, and I tell the story a lot. And and the pediatrician's a friend of mine, and he's very cool. It's it's late at night, and he he says, "Look at are the two ends of the ar- are the two ends of the arm in the same room?" <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Yeah." He says, "Okay, that just just pin his onesie, you know, take the sleeve and pin his onesie to his chest, and then mm-hmm. you know you 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 take them in the next day or two. There's no hurry to take them in. We don't do anything. They don't." They don't set them. They don't cast them. They just, they heal actually. So yeah, babies are pretty miraculous that pretty, way. Pretty darn miraculous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, so the first part of the paper, we then go on and talk about a history mm-hmm. because anybody who's going to do breech birth or read a paper about it needs to understand, well, why, are, why is, why is this idiot doing this stuff? Okay. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the term breach trial, which of course always seems to start. We, but actually, the the trend in uh, the trend in breach birth was going downward long before the 2000 term breach trial. It had started falling in the in the 80s and 90s, and it had fallen out of favor in a lot of places. And there were just there were some articles prior to the term breach trial that had said that cesarean section is better for it. And I guess you know that fit the model because there were articles that said that properly selected breach birth 
are fine. Like the the my one of my mentors is Martin Gamowski. He's in, I think he's still uh, mentoring in New Jersey. Um, he came out with a paper in '78 or '80 around that time. He was a fellow at USC when I just before I started my residency at Cedars, and um, he uh, came out with the things that where you do pelvimetry and you do certain measurements and you certain fetal weight and flexed head and all the things that we use now as parameters. And um, that was my first take. And I still remember as an intern or, ju or junior resident taking a pregnant lady in labor with a breech baby and, and putting him on a gurney and running him down to x-ray mm -hmm. or up to x-ray at Cedars. I think it was on the eighth floor. And uh, getting an x-ray of their pelvis and then getting out our little rulers and measuring the, the three diameters, the, tw the 10, 11, and 12 centimeter diameters and if the baby met those criteria then the baby could then she could go on and have a breech delivery and if she was if she missed by half a centimeter then she had to have a c-section that was sort of in the era where we we didn't think that we didn't realize that the pelvis is not a stable organ it's a dynamic organ and the pelvis changes and moves mm -hmm. depending on the position and we now know that women on all fours can open up their their uh, pelvic inlet and, and some of their diameters by more than almost two centimeters so uh, but in those days everybody gave birth on their back in lithotomy position like they still do at Monterey. <laughs> well, actually, <No>. honestly, <laughs> yeah. in, in being in all the hospitals in LA, not all, but most, um, it, it, the majority of the time, I would say 98% of the time, the doctors still feel most comfortable with that position. Still happening. So then we also discussed that after the term breach trial came out, it was sort of codified things and, and C-section rates uh, rose dramatically throughout the world. And within two years, however, they looked at the data and they found that the data was incorrect and and some of the findings should be reversed. And by 2006, Shocking. much to the credit of many of the uh, organizations like the Royal College of OBGYN and the Australian New Zealand College and American College, they reversed their their uh, recommendation and said that properly selected breech birth with uh, you know in skilled hands is certainly still a reasonable option. However, by then, of course, as we always know, the damage had been done and breech mm -hmm. birth had been essentially removed from most uh, training programs around the, the Western world. Um, the Promota study came out, which showed that there was actually no difference between vaginal breech birth and cesarean breech birth. Um, and there, and they had numbers that were four times larger than the term breech trial. Mm -hmm. All right. And then there were a number of studies and the only study that's an outlier of looking at like 10 different studies and Rick Safries does this really well. And I, and we have a, we have a slideshow that we do when we talk, when I go and give lectures, we talk about the paper now and we have a slideshow mm -hmm. and it shows there's only one study that's an outlier. And which one is it? The yeah. term breach trial. Mm -hmm. Everything else shows that the difference between vaginal breach and cesarean breach isn't that significant. And if you take into account the the risk of a vaginal head down baby, then the risk to a breach baby isn't that much different than a vaginal head than a than a head down baby. Right. All right. You got to compare apples to apples. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so we go through all that, and then we talk about the Cochrane reviews. Does everybody? I hope everybody knows what the Cochrane reviews are. They look at all the data, and they come out with recommendations. And initially, after the term breach trial, they basically moved from certainty uh, regarding the recommendation for a mode of delivery for breach to uh, complex uncertainty, which <laughs> is a term. <laughs> we're, we're both rolling our eyes a little bit. It's a little term that that means that they backed off from their certainty that this is how it should be done and that, that there are other, other ways to do things. And so the Cochrane Views came out along and they, they basically said that they recommended that they improve the safety of breach delivery is what we should be functioning on, not sectioning all breaches. All right. So again, these things get, uh, get ignored. 
And then, of course, ACOG comes out with its medical ethics dictates, and medical ethics recognizes that patient autonomy and decision-making should be honored. All right? Yes. And ACOG also produced a thing in 2016 where they talked about coercion. And they talked about it's absolutely forbidden to do that sort of thing. Um, but despite uh, good evidence, ethical arguments, and organizational support for the option of vaginal breech birth, there's been a concerted effort to eliminate vaginal breech birth in most American hospitals, including outright bans, which is what sort of got me and led, started me off on my path. Yes. As hospitals continue to restrict or ban vaginal breech birth, some women will give birth at home or in birth centers to avoid in a mandatory cesarean section. Some women may also choose to give birth unassisted with no care provider. Some state legislatures, including California, where I practice, have recently restricted midwives from attending out-of-hospital breach birth, further renarrowing midwives' options. Okay, so, um, again, as I said earlier, the research, uh, basically, prior to this paper, there is no data of, on home breach birth that has strict guidelines, that has strict protocols, that has patient, proper patient selection, that has skilled practitioner. All the other ones are just statistics. They're like birth certificate records or, or, or whatever. So you don't know the motivation. Right. Also, when you compare breech birth to, in all the other papers, breech vaginal birth is compared to breech cesarean birth. Now, obviously, I couldn't do that. Yes, but anymore. I, but because I don't do cesarean, mm -hmm. cesareans anymore. So mm -hmm. for me, it made sense when, I did, when we organized this paper in my head to compare, well, if everybody's okay with doing a head down baby, What's the real difference in risk between doing a head down baby and a breech baby that's properly selected? Right. And so we, you, we, we our study looked at breech versus vaginal head down babies as opposed to breech versus breech. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. And so it, what ACOG did was they, they, they based their recommendation on what I said earlier, which is data that's, that's not consistent. And so we wanted to have some data that's consistent. So this is sort of why we went into the paper. So then we go into the methods. Uh, we talk about methods, which is the, the heart of any paper is the materials and methods section. Mm -hmm. But most people don't want to read it because it's the most esoteric, boring mm. part of it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make people go to the paper and read it. But <laughs> it was a retrospective analysis of a series of planned out-of-hospital births for 60-term breach and 109 cephalic. Now, there's so many variations in the way you, you can't just compare breach and cephalic births at home because most of my cephalic clients, not all of them, because a lot of them I got at the last minute because a midwife would call me to come put a vacuum on. Mm. So my numbers on vacuums and forceps are skewed upwards. My numbers on episiotomies are skewed upwards because I have those women in my group. Mm -hmm. But most of the cephalic women were women that came into my care early in their pregnancy and had care all the way along, got a really strong relationship, that whole thing. Whereas almost all the breech moms came into my care when the in the la and days before they delivered to weeks before they delivered, mm -hmm. so we have we there you can't quantify that, but you can't dismiss it as a factor in the in the difference of the of the rates of delivery as well. Right. Um, we do, we describe the equipment we bring to births. Uh, we describe how we monitor people in labor. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we describe. Pushing only began when maternal urge became irresistible. Pushing was spontaneous rather than coached. Breach mothers were encouraged to labor down before active pushing began. These are important things with breaches and head down babies, I guess. Passage of pasty meconium mm -hmm. was considered a positive sign of descent. Yes. Okay. Not 
distress. So, you know, people that automatically think, I don't think my listeners think that, but I think that in the lay community, the, the word meconium is scary. People right. are scared of it because they've been conditioned are to you, be so. Are you talking about both cephalic and No, we're talking breech? about the breech moms with breech. Pa- pasty meconium because yeah. that's, a, it's like the toothpaste effect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, breech mothers were counseled about the benefits of upright and hands-off techniques. On the back positioning for breech was used on an as-needed basis and with maternal consent. Delayed cord clamping, uh, skin-to-skin, and then we list in here uh, Aurora's Breach Home Birth. We have a link to, so people can actually click on it and watch the famous Breach Home Birth that's on our website that's in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get into the, the weeds where Rick's a, is really good at, and Rick's his sister. Data was analyzed using the Strata version 14.1. We employed Fisher's exact test and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. <laughs> this stuff just might, it just puts me to sleep. <laughs> and then we have an, a, a flowchart algorithm which shows how we did it, where we started with 60 and 109, 10 breach, 7 head-down babies were transferred. Of the 50 breach births, 10 were transferred in labor. Uh, of the cephalic, 102 breach, uh, 11 were transferred in labor. Uh, only three of those ended up with cesareans. The rest all delivered vaginally. Um, so the results, again, we, I just sort of went over them. Interestingly enough, we found that um, a higher, much higher proportion of the breach group were first-time mothers, which is going to skew your data, of course. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we had a 76% success rate in the, in the, in the or an 80% overall success rate, if we had more multips, obviously, that would have been higher. Yeah. Um, there are people in my, in my ilk who are supporting breach delivery who think that, that multip breaches is something that we should really really do and that primate breaches sometimes should be sectioned. I'm not going to argue with that, although we did have a 76% sex success rate with sectioning, I mean with vaginal breach primips. But certainly the contrary is true. Sectioning a woman who's a multip, who has a breach that meets the safety criteria, I think is absolutely wrong. Right. Yeah. That's just it, right? That's it. Well, I, I believe that because sectioning it's a, so unnecessary. When I hear a woman tip. who's had three look at I go on to the um, Coalition for Breach Births Facebook page and the Breach Birth Australia New Zealand Facebook page. I'm on part of I'm a member of those groups and, and I hear the stories all the time and it's and all over the country, all over the world, people are writing in saying, you know, I've had three vaginal deliveries and now my fourth baby's breach and it won't turn and my doctor wants to schedule my cesarean. And it's like, Oh, you know, I just if 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 only there were practitioners in that area that they could do that. These women, you know, in my paper have a hundred percent success rate, but even if it's only 95 yeah. or 90 yeah. to section all multi breaches. What do you recommend that those women do? Decline, well, most of them don't decline? have, the, uh, I don't try to be specific about that sort of mm-hmm. thing, but a lot of the other midwives and, and people giving advice <laughs> do say that <laughs> just stay in your car or stay in the parking lot until the baby's coming out and then go in mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what do I recommend? A lot of them don't have the resources to travel. Mm-hmm. It's too right. hard, especially if they have three kids at home. Yeah. So they're screwed. Yeah. They're screwed. Mm-hmm. And if people don't know how to do a breach delivery, then uh, then forcing them to do it is not necessarily a good thing either. Right. Exactly. Um, interestingly enough, 57% of, my, of the babies were female. <laughs> okay, which is interesting because it meets, there was another paper that looked at it in Dutch babies and the 56.7 of the, the Dutch babies were female. So we had 
no correlation, no connection, and we have the exact same number, that there's a slight propensity for it to, uh, babies to be female. Did you know that three of my um, relatives were born breech? All women, by the way. No, I did not know that. Yeah, my sister, my aunt, and my cousin. Vaginally? Yeah, that's uh, when we okay. did it all vaginally. It was no big yeah. deal. Yeah. But it is interesting that, that there's a slight propensity. I don't I don't know why that would be. I don't know either. We're more difficult. <laughs> no, I always joke I always joke that babies don't like sitting boy babies don't like sitting on their balls. <laughs> having their balls come out first, that's like too painful, I think. So they turn real quickly when they So parents should just if you have a boy baby and it's breech, just talk to them and tell them that that, that you want to turn around because you don't want your <laughs> balls getting all bruised up. Anyway, we're going to run out of time, so I'm going to move forward. But just, you know, again, just because you can do this doesn't mean you should do this, but I, but I do it because both are true. I can do it and I should do it. Just because you can do breaches doesn't mean you should? Is that what you're saying? Home breaches. Oh, home breaches. Right. Mm-hmm. I do them here because there are so few choices. I mean, look, at we have... We in Los Angeles County alone, and I and I cover like six counties, but in Los Angeles County alone, we have over a hundred thousand births a year. Mm-hmm. All right, that means there's four thousand breaches a year. It took me six years to get fifty. Yeah, yeah, there's a 60. lot of a lot of breaches being set. So they're all being you know, and there's one or two other guys that do breach delivery. All right, and again, we always say that the skills for breaching breach delivery are what are really important because one third of breaches are 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 I'm told are diagnosed in labor. They're surprise breaches. Mm-hmm. So some of them are diagnosed early enough where they can do a C-section and that's what they'll do. But some of them, like Liz in the in the documentary, the baby's butt was coming out mm-hmm. and they pushed it back up inside so they could actually do a C-section and pull it out breach Crazy. from inside. Because, no, because there's, there's so much fear and so little knowledge. So what I'm hoping by putting out this paper is that besides the, the the crazy people who think I'm an idiot, mm-hmm. that some people will read this and get inspired to think, I want to learn this. I want to learn how to do breach deliveries. I'm going to be a resident OBGYN. You should I expect learn you to teach me how to be an OBGYN. Mm-hmm. You should learn it. Right. Yeah. As I've said in many other times, doing cesarean sections does not make you an obstetrician. Right. Being able to turn a baby, pull out, pull out a second twin, Doing a breach delivery, putting on forceps, that's the skill that makes obstetricians unique. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do. Um, let's see, we looked at, uh, again, we, saw, we talked about APGAR scores. Oh, perineal. Let's talk a little bit about perineal integrity. Um, and then if we have time, I want to ask you about informed consent about a potential breach. Uh, let's see, looking at the breach bursts, uh, and we do break it down. I'm just going to talk overall, but we do break it down into multips and primips. And all the, obviously, the more adverse things are all mostly in primips. I think we had nothing but intact or maybe first-degree tears in the multips mm-hmm. in both the head down and the uh, cephalic births. We never had any, you know, third or fourth degrees. We did have um, one fourth degree in the breach group on a primip. I remember that one. Um, and then we had two third degrees. So our, our rate for th- um, third degrees was 5%. Our rate for fourth degrees was 22 five percent because obviously 50 is an easy number to um oh it's actually 40 so well, 40, 40 is an easy number to what was different on those three births can you remember they, they were probably th- where i had to go in and get them okay yeah that makes sense yeah. yeah where the babies were either in trouble their heart rates were down or they were coming down with the back sideways and they weren't rotating like normal breaches do yeah which is you know that's a good uh trade-off and, and i think all these women were on their back mm-hmm. which for me the ones that tore yes uh-huh because f- about the first 25 of the, of the 40 women had, had breaches at home, maybe the first 28 or 29, 
all were on their back because that's how I learned to do breech delivery. Right. And at, in the in the last fifteen or so, I think eleven of them were on all fours because I'm trying to get more people on all fours. But I find that if I have to intervene, if I if there's a problem and I need to do my maneuvers. I'm just more spatially oriented when people are on their back because yeah. that's just what I was doing. I've been doing for 30 some years. Right. Um, APGAR scores, we talked about that uh, they were lower APGAR scores at one minute, but there was no difference at five minutes. Um, so then we just, our discussion basically says high rates of vaginal birth are possible for both breech and cephalic presentation in a home or birth center setting, similar to or greater than levels reported in two recent large studies of the out of hospital births. And that includes the Manistats. And another group of, uh, another stats by, uh, I forgot who, um, by a guy named Stapleton. He did birth center stats in 2013. There's Do you a remember what the mana stats were? You, you referred to it in the for, beginning. For what? You said that the reason that they made these suggestions is because the mana stats sto- showed that the breach results were worse. I don't, I don't have them in my, uh, that, okay. yeah, Rixa would know that, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have that in my head. Okay. Um, I'll look it up. But, but comparing myself to the mana stats, we had a 10.8% rate of in-labor transfer. Mm-hmm. And the Manistats had a 10.9% mm-hmm. in-labor transfer. Okay. And this is just, this is all their home births. This is not just um, breach. This is yeah. all their home births. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, uh, I had a 19.6% rate of assisted vaginal birth, which would be either vacuum or forceps. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's again because I did so many assists with midwives and stuff like that. Right. They only had a 1.2%. And I'm not sure even how they did that because <laughs> they don't, they don't, don't do, do vacuums that. or forceps. Yeah. So I don't know what those what those meant. Mm. Um, they had a 93.6% success rate overall. And overall I had a 77.5% success rate in the cephalic group. Um, which didn't include, that was ones without forceps or vacuums. Mm-hmm. So 77%. So they had a much higher rate of that. But again, I a lot of my births I'm called for at the very end. Right. So that skews my numbers. But we, we discussed it very carefully in the paper. And then lastly, I'll go to, we talked about strengths and limitations. And we talked about, uh, although fetal and maternal outcomes for care transfers are usually reported back informally by the parents, medical records for these women were not available. So we could not do analysis on what we call intention to treat. So the ones that got transported to the hospital, we have no data on the uh, on the outcomes of that. Right. That's a flaw in our paper. We would love to have data to see like if laboring at home stuff. if laboring at home led to worse outcomes for women that got transferred than if women were in the hospital. But right. we, we don't have that sort of information. We don't have access to the medical records from the hospital. Right. Um, the small sample size is a pro- is an issue with our paper. Okay. We acknowledge that many consider breech birth to be high risk and that home or breech center birth to be an absolute contra- contraindication. However, hospitals in many countries have consistently um, failed or refused to offer vaginal breech birth since the term breech trial. Women continue to value vaginal birth highly. When hospitals or providers refuse to offer vaginal breech birth, someone will seek care out of the hospital. Then um, we talk about we warn of the dangers of restricting breech birth. And then we... Quote ACOG in their uh, condemnation of using coercion. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that um, we also quote a guy named Bassaw who says this A policy of planned vaginal birth for selected breached fetuses with a low threshold to proceed to cesarean section 
may still be in the best interest of both mother and child. The individual woman's wishes must be taken into consideration as for some, labor is an integral and treasured experience and a mm-hmm. vaginal delivery is a life event of enormous magnitude. Who's that? This is a guy named Bassaw in 2004 in uh, Breach Outcomes in a tertiary hospital in Trinidad. He's an OB. He's an OB. Oh, love it. Yeah, in Trinidad. Love that. So we conclude that we, uh, that we can do these things, that we have decent outcomes, that we have high rates of success, the risks are not very high, although we don't reach. To, you know, we don't have the, the numbers to make it powered to thing like to say that conclusively. And so, whether a planned out of hospital breach birth is considered reasonable or safe is an individual judgment call based on the history and values of the expectant family, and on the birth options available within their communities. Reviving vaginal breach skills in all settings, and respecting maternal autonomy would benefit both practitioners and the women we care for. I love it. And this could be offered as part of people's informed consent, you know, that gives that other side of, of their options. It won't happen, but it could be. Yeah. So for people that dismiss it on hand, they haven't read it. Yeah. Because we, 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 we collect a lot of the data that's out there. We put it in a readable form. Mm-hmm. We, we try to make it clear. And then we present our data in a, in, in as a straightforward and honest way as we can. We're not, bragging we're not saying people should do this we're putting the numbers out there and we're suggesting that people this obviously everything like most papers and they say more research in this area is is recommended or Mm -hmm. something or is needed that's what they say and that's what we we would do so great job i hope that people will share this thing again you can find it on uh, the best way to find it again is goes to birthinginstincts.com click on the top banner um Thanks for sharing all detail. I loved hearing your Did you your say you had one extra question for me? Did you say that? Well, yeah. Um, I have someone who's a multip um, having her fourth baby, and it's a little hard to palpate whether or not this baby is breech or not, and she has declined getting an ultrasound. And so it's putting my my the rubber the, the road for me in terms of um, informed consent because it's a legal issue for me not to be able to deliver breaches. So I just kind of wanted to bring that to someone else's mind because one of my colleagues said, well, they have a right to choose whether or not they do any testing, right? Isn't that your policy? And I was like, yeah, but somehow this feels different to me. Yeah, but I bet your consent form says the same thing as my consent form and says something about your comfort is important as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you have a woman who's got a blood pressure of 160 over 110... And she doesn't want to go to the hospital. Or she doesn't want me to take her blood pressure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? You, you, you know, I mean, you don't want to abandon your client, but also you have yeah. to do what's medically sound. So in those sorts yeah. of cases, you, you know, you consult with people. You might have to call 911 and you might have to say, listen, you can refuse them, but I have to call them. Yeah. So the same sort of thing here. You might, I mean, you might tell the woman that I know you don't want an ultrasound, but uh, literally an ultrasound for 1.2 seconds mm-hmm. is all we need. To see. To see where the head is. Yeah. Yeah. She's had some trauma with past providers. And so I think she just is having a trust issue. But yeah, thank you for Well, you know what? You can borrow my portable ultrasound machine if you want, and you can do it yourself. That's a cool offer. I'll think about that. Thanks. It's in my car. Okay, cool. Downstairs. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. So listen, we, we, uh, you know, I really appreciate this was sort of, uh, I was running at the mouth on this one. And I think it was a a good distraction from podcast 134, (laughs) which is still weighing heavy on me. And, uh, but I hope that our listeners understand that what we do here on the podcast is we, 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 you know, we, 
we don't seek out controversy. We're just, by definition, controversial. Yep. But controversy doesn't mean wrong. And right. it doesn't mean bad. No. And so what we are doing here is we're putting things out there so that they're in the ether and that people who are stuck with situations where they have nothing going on in the community can try to at least start to make some changes. And start to think outside of the box. You know, you have some other people showing you a different perspective. I think that's important. Yep. So thanks again for listening. We appreciate having you. This has been podcast number 134. Five, 135. We'll catch you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye.